Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's show is an interview with Jake Sticka. He's the co-founder and executive director of Next Gen Men. Jake is passionate about creating spaces to engage, educate, and empower men and boys in conversations around gender. And he's talking about gender in schools, communities, and workplaces. And Jake works with corporate clients to help tackle myths around what it means to be a man at work. So if you're wondering when men are finally going to step up and help out and make work better, your episode has arrived. So sit tight, everybody, and I'll be right back with more Jake Sticka and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's Fix Work together. And now with the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. So, hey, Jay, can you tell me about Next Gen Men? What is it and how are you fixing work? So Next Gen Men is a Canadian nonprofit organization aimed at engaging, educating, and empowering men and boys around gender. Our original intention definitely had nothing to do with fixing work, but over time, we actually grew into that. One thing that I do like to say is that gender is omnipresent. Oftentimes, when we think of the word gender, the first thing that we think about is women. The second thing we think about is trans and non-binary folk. And the last thing we really think of is men. And men are gendered individuals. And you know, when we think about gender as omnipresent, it's in our relationships, it's in our parenting, our work roles that we have. And so kind of over time, when we were doing this work, we saw that it overlapped. And so it was kind of a natural growth vertical for us. So you're trying to fix work by fixing men. That's what I've gained by getting to know you. So can you tell me why you're passionate about this topic and how you got started? Yeah, definitely. I do want to say that it's not necessarily about fixing men. I don't don't think that men are inherently broken. But we talk about, you know, the betterment of men and better, again, not being the opposite of bad, but in the sense of, you know, when you go on a diet or you start exercising, you want to be healthier. So in that sense, better is equals healthier. Okay. All right. I'll fix men on my own free time. But can you tell me how you got started and why you're passionate about this topic? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of a personal story. And there's obviously the business story. The business story was pretty easy. It was inspired by an article, saw a funding opportunity, fancied myself entrepreneurial, pitched the idea, received the funding, and then it's so crap, we got to start something. So we started our youth programs. But on a personal level, I grew up in a traditional East European family where we don't really talk about much we've met in person. I'm, I'm quite tall and I played semi-professional basketball. So I grew up in jock culture. Being a big guy, I worked as a doorman on and off for 10 years. So you see the worst sides of all people. And then, you know, it gets a little more sensitive where, you know, I've dated several sexual assault survivors over the course of my adult life. I dated a pretty strong feminist in university. And then really like the breaking point for me was my own struggles around kind of depression and anxiety and mental health breakdown in uh, 2010. And really just building myself up and my identity as a person and as a man from there. And, you know, that was really my first time truly understanding how my gender had set me up for failure and how it impacts and reflects on others. 
So wait, wait, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So how does your gender set you up for failure and how does it impact others? Yeah. So I mean, like traditionally from like a very tiny age, you know, boys don't cry, man up, don't ask for help, all these little kind of nudges that you get over the course of your life. And then when it comes to a point where you can't bear it and you can't take it anymore, you break to some extent. And, you know, we see so many negative ramifications of this, especially when it comes to men. Three out of four suicides are men. Men are the primary perpetrators of all forms of violence. Men have increased rates of incarceration, homelessness, and addiction. So I'm a firm believer that I think all of those little nudges contribute to the social-emotional learning over the course of a lifetime. And unfortunately, we see lots of men break. So I'm always confused about this because it feels like every 20 years, we go through a new revolution where we're going to educate men or help men or bring them up to speed. I remember when I was in high school and then college, 1992 was the year of the woman. And we were going to focus on women and we were going to stop sexual assault and stop harassment in the workforce. And then again, in the early 2000s, and here we are in 2018, we keep having the same conversation over and over again about men about women and really, really just about power, I think. So why is that? What's broken? Why are we still talking about men being the perpetrators of violence, men harassing women, men living up to a construct that really is unfair for them to live up to? Why haven't we fixed this yet? Yeah, so I don't pretend to be kind of like an academic or a theorist of any sorts, but from one of my colleagues who is, I heard a brilliant thought around the reason why feminism is referred to as waves, because there's always an undertow, right? And we're kind of in this third wave right now. And with each one kind of, there's been new ground broken and women are moving forward. And, you know, the fact that we're having these conversations, I think means that we're doing better than we ever have before. But I do think that this is one of the first times where the conversation has been more male centered. I think it was Will I Am at the World Economic Forum said, women don't need any more empowerment. They just need opportunities to be powerful. And part of that is removing barriers. And a lot of the barriers that exist today are kind of structured within this patriarchal system that we exist within. And then also a caveat, like patriarchy is overly simplistic to say that it's upheld by gender. It's the industrial complex, capitalism, colonialism, all of that kind of whipped together, right? And so, you know, as much as women are gaining in, you know, positions of leadership and money earning and stuff like that, we are lacking seeing men in early childhood education or nursing and some of those more traditionally caregiving roles. And so under the banner of feminism, the last 50 plus years, I think we've had a brilliant conversation about women's identities and roles in society, but there has been a slightly missing conversation for and about men. So is that where next gen men comes into place? Because, you know, when we first started talking initially, it felt counterintuitive and almost a little narcissistic to think about men in this conversation. So can you tell us what next gen does in terms of your programs to improve men's health and well-being, reduce all forms of violence and promote gender equity? And what is equity focused leadership? Right. So Next Gen Men kind of exists within three contexts. So the youth program is also known as Next Gen Men. And really there we work with 12 to 18 year old boys on 
about what it means to quote unquote be a man, right? And yeah, wait, do you have a definition? We don't. That's the thing. Like, I think that just the way that we're conditioned in society today, we always want to aspire to be a specific thing. And for us, it's not a singular definition of masculinity, it's masculinities. So it's a plurality. So it's okay if you're, you know, the traditional, you know, quarterback football player type of guy, right? There's nothing wrong with that unless you then use that position to abuse and dominate over others, but it's fine to be that. But then on the same time, it's also fine to be kind of maybe the more flamboyant drama student and still be considered a quote unquote man. Right. And so really, it's just breaking down that singular definition and allowing people to grow into their authentic selves. I love that. All right. So you've got the youth program. What else are you doing? Then we got monthly discussion groups called Wolfpack, where we hold space for conversations men don't traditionally have. And so with that in mind, you know, we want to get past those water cooler conversations about, you know, sports statistics and politics and dig into some more vulnerable topics that can kind of create a community of social support. One of the number one detriments to men's health as they age is social isolation. And you can't necessarily build a good network of people around you unless they actually know who you are and know what makes you tick. And so this last month in Calgary, we spoke about media and masculinity and how media upholds these ideas of what it means to be a man. We talked about, you know, James Bond and Homer Simpson. And then <laughs> yeah. um, in Edmonton, we talked about dating. And within dating, we talked about rejection and consent. And then in Toronto, we spoke about competition. And what does competition elicit in us? Is it a passion to build a team to achieve a goal? Or is it to dominate the field of competition? So I wonder how you get men to come out to these events in the first place, because a lot of the men that I know who are over the age of 30 oftentimes have a difficult time connecting with other men. And it almost seems as if my husband's gotten older, the friendships that he has are deeper, right? But they're fewer. He doesn't have as many friends, but he has long-term friends. And I see this as a pattern with many of my heteronormative friends who are in heteronormative marriages, but also, you know, friends who are coupled differently. As men age, they seem to connect differently than women. So how are you getting them out? How are you getting them to talk? And give me some tips for getting my husband to get out of the house. We've had some good media coverage that always helps, you know, word of mouth. And oftentimes women are kind of the bridge, right? Like women, women such as yourself who are concerned about, you know, the health and well-being of their partners will say, hey, like I saw this group and I think that it'd be really great. And, you know, do you want to go together? And we host them usually in a pub and you can come have a beer, have a conversation, right? We try and make it as non-threatening as possible and really just try and facilitate a place where people can come and feel safe to, you know, take off that mask of masculinity for a little bit and, you know, talk about some real shit. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've got the youth program and then you do these outreach talks, right? These groups where people come together. Anything else that we're missing from your organization? Finally, is the question you asked originally around equity leaders. And so equity leaders works to engage leaders, which still in most industries are men, around conversations around diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I think that the way that we approach it through this kind of gender intelligence and masculinity lens actually really helps move the conversation forward. Because I think that in a lot of contexts, 
guys in workplaces can feel like these conversations are happening to them rather than for and with them. And so how can we unpack some issues that, you know, a male, pale and stale leader in a workplace is feeling, you know, we all know the tired trope of the executive who's on their second or third marriage, their kids hate them, and they're one bad day away from a heart attack. That's not like an ideal form of masculinity to live up to. So how can we, you know, take that tired trope and build it into these conversations around diversity and inclusion? You know, that's super interesting that you talk about the stereotypical ideal of a male leader. The other thing that I've been seeing, and it's unfortunate that it lives up to the stereotype, is the dude in power who is now saying things like Tony Robbins said, which is, you know, I want to have more women on my leadership team. I want to mentor more women, but I don't want to spend time alone with women right now. It feels real dangerous. I don't feel secure. I have an answer for that, and it's not kind. And I wonder if you can help me give an answer to that executive who's concerned about being alone with a young woman or anybody, anybody young at this point. I might not be kind either, because I think if you are scared to be in the same space as a woman, then you don't trust yourself. Because, like, again, playing on these stereotypes that we know exist in society. There is a reason why fathers polish their shotguns when girlfriends bring boys home, because we are a product of that boy-man culture. So we know how shitty guys can be. And so if we don't want to be alone with a woman, it's because we know how shitty guys can be in those spaces. And you know, to move past that and to create spaces where all people feel that they can have physical and mental safety, we have to lean into that. And practice that, right? Like we're not going to win anything by dividing further. A hundred percent agree with you. And I think we like to blame our litigious society, especially here in America. And we say things like, well, I don't want to be alone with a woman because she may sue me, or we don't know what she's going to say in a few years. Have you heard this? Do you have a further response to that as well? Just more of like, get over yourselves, dude. I'm not a woman, so I can't speak for that. But like, women win nothing by making false accusations. Like the judicial system that exists as is, is incredibly traumatizing. People have to relive their experiences over and over just to prove a point. You know, thinking about the Cosby initiative and how many people were saying that, you know, these women were coming forward to make a name for themselves. I challenge anyone to tell me a name of a woman who did that because there is no winning from making these accusations. Agree, 100%. Now listen, I've been talking about men and women in binary terms. So what, if anything, is Next Gen Men doing to fix work? And I'm going to use air quotes for people who don't identify on the polar ends of the gender spectrum. And how can we make work better for a human who identifies themselves otherwise than he or she, or, you know, they identify as they, they're them? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm human too. You know, even though I do this work, I fuck up all the time. Oh, Sorry, yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to. You are. Here. Please swear some more. <laughs> I'm struggling with that and I'm doing my own learning and unlearning. And it's not an erasure of those individuals. It's just that I've been so conditioned to think in binary terms as well. And so it's been a personal initiative of mine. You know, sometimes maybe I sound like I'm from Texas because I say y'all instead of hey guys. We encourage organizations to change some of their wording, you know, in an employee handbook from he and she to they, their, them. 
And I think that people need to acknowledge that it's a process and that nobody's perfect. You know, I'm going to be moderating a panel upcoming with a bunch of oil and gas executives. And, you know, one of their fears is, you know, this industry as a whole is a little bit behind. And my job as a moderator is to set the stage. And part of that is saying, hey, listen, nobody has this figured out. There is no one company that is crushing it. There's no one industry. It's just a matter of acknowledging that there is an issue and you want to begin working on it. And that's what I can encourage is that thinking openly and critically around gender can only stand to benefit, you know, retention, corporate culture, people feeling valued, all of these things that companies are worried about and thinking about. When companies engage you, how do they engage you, Jake? And how do they engage NextGen Men? Is it specifically on the leadership program that you have? Or are there other ways to work with you and talk about masculinity or just gender in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different opportunities on how we can collaborate with different groups and organizations. We do, you know, one-off workshops, presentations, we do evaluation, we do consulting, all of those things. But at the end of the day, what I'm really excited about is we created this program called Equity Focused Leadership, which I've started kind of calling the missing MBA course on how to be a more equitable leader. And the reason why I think this is important is because, you know, I think there's a temptation in a lot of organizations because one, the work is difficult, two, budgets, you know, three, perception. Let's just do a lunch and learn. Let's do a diversity and inclusion lunch and learn. You can't change people in a lunch and learn. Like I could maybe present one compelling idea, but then as soon as someone opens up their inbox and they see all the emails they missed over the lunch and learn, it's gone, right? And so with this program, it's actually 14 sessions delivered over six to 12 months. And we run leaders through unconscious bias, power and privilege, gender and masculinity, gender and feminism. And those are like the most frustrating modules because especially when we have male leaders in those spaces, guys are fixers. They just want the lever to pull, the button to push, to change it and to be better. And they do want to be better. But there's a certain level of knowledge and attitude that you need to do better. And then we kind of start compounding that with skills-based modules around hiring, compensation, and promotion practices, mentorship and sponsorship, communication, respectful workplaces. And over that period of time, like the transformation is just amazing. And, you know, speaking of one group that we work with, two of the executives after our session on feminism said that they can now identify as feminists and three executives after the mental health components said that, you know, they're going to take mental health days to encourage their subordinates that it's okay to do so as well. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Well, you used a couple of phrases in your language and not everybody who listens in my audience is an HR professional or even a business person. So I thought maybe we could identify and define some of those terms. And the first one that I've heard you use and I've seen on your website is gender equity and gender equality. Can you talk about what those words mean? Yeah, I think that gender equity is probably my preferred term. Gender equality can start to stipulate. And so like, let's start with this, I guess. Gender parity, I think, is a very difficult term to use because that just stipulates 50-50. Yeah. And it kind of creates frustrations on both sides for both women and men. And it erases, you know, trans folks from the equation. And so gender parity, what happens when there's 60% women and 40% men? Then we have to like flip the switch. 
But because historically we've had such imbalance, why isn't that okay for a little period of time either, right? So I think yeah. that that's a, a tough word and, and parity kind of leads to equality. And then I think equity is probably the best because it just means being realistic with how things are and removing barriers. So, you know, the general population is actually 51% female and 49% male. So that is what our representative workforce should look like. But at the end of the day, there are certain choices and gender roles and biological components to consider that doesn't equal that. But, you know, how can we be realistic? You know, if you run like one thing that blew my mind earlier this year was Revlon in its history has its first ever female CEO, Revlon makeup, you know, like, and <laughs> right. so what kind of barriers existed in that, you know, how can we make it more equitable and more reflective of, you know, our consumers and our customers and our employees and the general population, right? Like when we look around at these groups of board of directors and C-suite and stuff like that. Super interesting. All right. So tell me, what is unconscious bias? Again, like, you know, I don't necessarily have the psychological or scientific background to be clear about that. And we're not academics. We just want to know what you think it is. So yeah, what do you think? If you have a brain, you're biased, right? We take in 40 million bits of information per second, and we can actually only consciously process 40 bits per second. (laughs) So that makes... 99% of our thought process to be unconscious. And a great example that I like to use in my sessions around this is asking people if they've tied their shoelaces lately. And when they have tied their shoelaces, do they think about making the bunny ears and going around (laughs) the loop, right? These are just unconscious thoughts that we kind of build up because if we were fully conscious beings over the course of our day, we wouldn't be able to process, right? Another great example is how many times you drive your car and you end up where you were safely and not actually remember the path you took there. And so these are just learnings. And if, if our judgments around other people are built in those kinds of learnings, like how, you know, especially thinking of the car idea, like how many car accidents are we causing on our way when we let our unconditioned thoughts around other people drive us? So when we have unconscious bias at work, what does that mean? It just means that we make assumptions about things, right? Unconscious biases are the stories that we tell ourselves about others before we actually know them. And that's a quote I stole from a TED Talk. So don't... Oh, I love it. it. No, that was really great. (laughs) At the end of the day, that's really what it is. And I think that it's disingenuous also to think, you know, I run these workshops all the time and I leave people saying, you know, this isn't going to work. Like me running an awareness-based workshop with you will not mean that you don't have unconscious biases. What's really important is to set systems, structures, and procedures in place and a culture that calls bias out and de-biases us before we're allowed to put that in. God, I love that. You know, um, working on my own as a solo entrepreneur, I mean, that's a real challenge that I face all the time because the only person around to challenge me is me. And if I don't do it, I don't learn. And I'm constantly in a cycle where I'm trying to educate myself and trying to stay on top of it. But I work in a different kind of environment. I don't have colleagues who can challenge me or teach me in the moment. So it's definitely uh, something I could benefit from, a course like that. Absolutely. Finally, I would love to learn what allyship is because you used that term in our discussion a little while ago. So can you tell me what that is? 
Yeah, allyship is really just one, I think, grounded in an understanding of one's own privilege. And privilege, again, can be one of those, you know, sticky words for folks. But at the end of the day, I acknowledge that I'm, you know, a six foot eight straight white guy. One of my examples around privilege is being six foot eight as a basketball player. I have more privilege than shorter basketball players. But there's others that are even taller than I am. And the fact that I have privilege doesn't mean I don't hit my head on things and airplanes don't suck. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Privilege isn't always a great thing either. So one, it starts with an acknowledgement of that. And it's two, seeing the barriers that are in place in front of other underrepresented or lesser privileged groups, aligning yourself with those groups, not necessarily putting yourself in front of them, but more kind of beside them or behind them and working towards a goal of overcoming those barriers with them. And I think one example, like in 2018, you know, I know in the American context, it varies, but at least in Canada, it's not allyship to say that I'm pro marriage equality, right? Like there is no risk to me saying that. But, you know, in a more contentious time, being a straight person that was for marriage equality, where you could be shunned and you could be, you know, you could face those same barriers and discriminations that that population exists, then I think that that's true allyship. And it's in the action of not just the thought of like, yeah, I'm pro marriage equality. No, it's showing up for the rallies. It's advocating in spaces where, you know, gay folks aren't stuff like that. Yeah, I get it. You know, you're a young man, Jake, and I love that you're doing this work. If you go 50 years, 60 years down the road, and you look back at your career, how are you going to know that you were successful? That's a great question. I mean, for us right now, we're going to be a four-year-old organization in the fall. And it's the little wins and it's the momentum. And it's, you know, for me, I, I think I'm successful already now when I look at my peer group, guys in their early 30s. And, you know, I got a text message today from a buddy of mine who never would have thought about these things. And he read an article and it was about how sexual violence is on the decline, but males are still reporting similar levels of violence. So that means that, you know, in relationships, at least in this one studies context, there wasn't so much intergender violence, but amongst men, there's still high rates of violence. And he never would have thought or had that lens to think about those things. And, you know, now I have these different guys turning to me to ask these questions about gender and masculinity and gender equity and workplace related things. And that's successful to me is getting folks to just think about these things a bit differently. Yeah, that's really great. Well, congratulations on all your success, Jake. You and I met in Canada when I was hosting an event up there, and I was blown away by your speaking abilities and your presentation. You had really great ideas. So I want everybody to get to know you and Next Gen Men. So please tell everybody where they can find you on the internet. We're on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Next Gen Men. If they're thinking more about kind of the work-related things, we're on Twitter and LinkedIn at Equity Leaders. The Next Gen Men website is nextgenmen.ca, not .com. And Equity Leaders is equityleaders.org. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being on Let's Fix Work today. And I really appreciate your hard work in this area. I appreciate the uh, platform to talk about it. Thanks again. Bye. Awesome. Hey, everybody. It's Lori Rudiman here. 
You know I'm all in on the Let's Fix Work podcast. I want to deprioritize corporate interests, amplify good ideas, and help people fix work by fixing themselves. But I need your help. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash let's fix work and contribute to the podcast's growth. I need your help in building an infrastructure, growing the community, and making Let's Fix Work a permanent place for good ideas. Your donation is essential for the show's success, and any contribution would mean the world to me. Thank you again so much for listening to Let's Fix Work, and thanks in advance for your support. Hey, friends. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jake Sticka. There was no man-bashing or man-hating, just a good conversation about how men can be the change they want to see in the world. You can find Jake on LinkedIn, and all of his contact information will be in the show notes. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino, Megan Doherty, and Gerson de la Flesh make the show sound great. Do you like what you hear? Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star review. Now that's all for this week's show. I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR. 